Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. And Father, that is uh, an understatement. As we uh, we come and we gather, Lord, we are ever aware um, that we have no right to draw into your presence other than through the access granted to us by your Son. And so, Lord, uh, as we today celebrate communion and as we meditate on that reality, Lord, we do pray that you would enlarge our hearts to know and understand that truth. And, Lord, that you'd bless us for coming into your presence, even as we seek to bless your name and to honor you uh, with our praise and our prayers. Um, so, Lord, be blessed. Minister, continue, continue to minister uh, to our hearts, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, friends, we are celebrating communion today, but prior to doing that, we're going to look at a portion of Proverbs 12, uh, excuse me, 15. So if you would please turn to Proverbs chapter 15. We'll look at a smaller section than perhaps typically so that we can leave some time for some additional worship and song and we can uh, celebrate uh, communion together. Um, Proverbs chapter 15, we have already begun, so we're about halfway through. So skim on down to verse 13 where we left off. And I'll read it to you. It says this, A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart the spirit is crushed. A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart the spirit is crushed. Very similar. There's another proverb that is perhaps a little more familiar to you. It's in chapter 17. That says this, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones, maybe a little more familiar to you, but both of those are essentially saying the same thing. Solomon is drawing our attention to the way in which a cheerful disposition can positively impact a person. Just simply the way in which a cheerful disposition can positively impact a person from the appearance on their face, even to their overall health condition, a cheerful disposition can impact the person positively. And once again now, Solomon is drawing our attention to the importance of the condition of our heart, something we have been talking about again and again in our study of Proverbs, the condition of our heart. Where your heart is at, everything else is going to be impacted by that in your life. And we've already seen examples of that. We've seen examples of where your heart is is going to impact the words that come out of your mouth. We've seen an example of where your heart is. That's how you're going to respond to circumstances. So if people wrong you, where your heart is is going to determine how you respond in those particular circumstances. Where your heart is is going to impact the place that you allow yourself to go, the things you allow yourself to get involved with. All of those things are dependent upon the condition of where your heart is. And here now Solomon simply says that the very look on your face, on a person's face, is impacted by what's going on down in the deep places of your heart. Now, for the believer, for the child of God, the heart may not always be giddy, and our hearts may not always be filled with laughter, but, and that's not what this verse is trying to imply, this idea that uh, a cheerful heart, we're always going to be happy, we're always going to be giddy, always have a smile on our face. That's not necessarily what Solomon is trying to get at. What Solomon is trying to get at, he's addressing this general sense of negativity that is so often present in others and ought to be missing in the heart of the one that follows the Lord. And you know people like that, don't you? Just always negative. And you don't even want to be around them after a particular while because uh, it's as if it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
Everything is negative. See, there's another thing. There's another thing, another thing. You don't want to be around it. Somebody has said this, that one of God's greatest evangelistic tools is the cheerful spirit of those that are following after them. And that's a statement, obviously, that we could sit around and we could wonder. But there's a lot of truth in that statement, whether it's absolutely true or not. I guess it could be debated, but there's a lot of truth in it that your general demeanor can draw people to Christ. Because what people do is they see that, they take notice of your general positive outlook and cheerful heart that is there, and they begin to ask the question, whether they say it out loud or not, but they begin to wonder, what makes this person so different? Or as it says in 1 Peter, what is the reason for the hope that is found in this particular person? And so then, not only is a cheerful heart good for you, It's just going to impact you positively as you go about your days, but it can be used as a tool to draw others to the Lord as well. And so if you recognize, and we'll talk a little more about it in a few verses, if you recognize that your general disposition is negative in nature, that's a matter you want to bring to the Lord to pray about that particular matter. That's just who I am. Yeah, I know. Bring it to the Lord and let him do a work within you. Okay, it's that significant. Verse 14, it says, Now the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feeds on folly. The wise individual is never satisfied with their wisdom. There's never a point where the wise individual is going to say, All right, I got everything I need to know. I'm good. Now let me go on the lecture circuit. The wise individual is ever seeking to grow and to learn. And the most knowledgeable people, and not just head knowledge, book knowledge, but the most knowledgeable, the ones that are skilled at life, that's what wisdom means, the most knowledgeable people never stop in their pursuit of knowledge because they know and they realize just how much they don't know. And so they're ever seeking to learn and understand and uh, see where it is that God is directing them and leading them. And that's what really makes them wise, the realization that they still need more wisdom. So they never seek to learn. Now notice, though, the second half of this verse, it continues. It's also important. The second half says, but the mouths of fools feeds on folly. And so what we can take from that is not only is the, the wise person knowledgeable because they realize they don't have all the knowledge that they're going to need, But the wise person is knowledgeable because they know where to go to get good knowledge. Here it says the fools feed on folly. The converse would be the wise person feeds on wisdom. They go to the right place to get the right information so that they can continue to grow and continue to acquire wisdom. The fool, though, either gives himself to pursuing folly, foolishness, when he should be going to knowledge, or he gives himself to other fools, becoming more and more like those that he is, so to speak, feeding on. So be wise with what you give yourself to, the people you give yourself to, those that you allow to influence you and how you spend your time because all of those things will determine and impact the type of person you are becoming, okay? Verse 15, it says, All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. Very similar to verse 13, closely related to this. For some reason, maybe you've come to experience what I have, for some reason, the optimist always seems to have a great day, while the pessimist just can't seem to catch a break. You notice that in life? The optimist always, no, apparently not. Okay, nobody's with me. Uh, But the optimist, it just seems, always has a great day. Yeah, there's some things here and some things there, but overall, it was a great day. It was a good day. Had a nice day. The pessimist, on the other hand, just can't seem to get a break. Is that a coincidence? I don't think it is. 
it's been said that the attitude of your spirit affects the altitude of your spirit. And if you tend to be a person that gripes and complains all the time and generally approaches life with a negative attitude, it's no wonder that things, to come off, things tend to come off negatively in your life. And I know it's overly simplistic, but the simple daily decision to approach life cheerfully and with a positive outlook has the power to make a world of difference in your life. Overly simplistic, but it's the reality. So if you wake up as a grump, somebody said this, if you wake up grumpy, you should let her sleep in more. You know, you ever heard that one? That's rude. That's terrible. But if you wake up as a grump in the morning, well, before you get going with your day, deal with that grumpiness. Skip breakfast if you have to. Well, you'll probably be grumpy then. But, but if you need to, take the time. Do it while you're in the shower or something, multitask. Take the time and say, Lord, I can already tell my heart is not where it needs to be today. And I got a bad attitude already. And, I, and nobody's even awake in the house yet. So it's my fault. All right. And then just ask the Lord to deal with it. Don't go through your whole day with that. You don't need to. Give it over to the Lord. I, I wrote here a little note. Stop being an Eeyore. Remember Eeyore? You know, so you can picture that little horse or whatever he is. What's he, a dog? He's a donkey. Okay, sorry. It's been a long time. All righty. Don't be an Eeyore. Verse 16 and 17. It says, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Now, back in verse 15, the one we were just looking at, the one having to do with Eeyore, back in verse 15, Solomon told us the value of a cheerful spirit. Here now, in verses 16 and 17, he tells us really the true source of that cheer, which is simply this, being in right relationship with God and man. That's the true source of our cheer. cheer. Solomon says, better is a little without uh, the fear of, no, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord, Solomon tells us. Too often, we look to the treasures of this world to bring us our cheerfulness. And we convince ourselves if we only had a bigger bank account, a bigger house, a nicer car, more expendable income to go out and do whatever we want, if we only had those things, then our heart would be full. But the testimony of Scripture says the exact opposite right here. It says the exact opposite. The testimony of Scripture says because God designed us differently, that what's truly going to bring joy to your heart and cheer to your heart is being in right relationship with God and with man. That's how we were designed as human beings. We were designed to find our satisfaction not in the things around us, but rather in God and in right relationship with those that are around us, with man. And it's not until we are in right relationship, Solomon calls that the fear of the Lord, it's not until we are in right relationship that that can happen. Now, as I've been pointing out, the second thing that God calls us to is right relationship with those that are around us. And if you look at sort of the second portion of that verse, it talks about this idea of where love is. You can have this big feast without love. It's not going to be very pleasing to you. If you look at the Old Testament, there are 613 laws or rules that are found in the Old Testament regarding our relationship with God and with other people. Those can be summarized into two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's essentially what all 613 of those laws are designed to communicate. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're thinking, wow, Greg, that's really profound. You summarized the whole Bible in that way. I didn't summarize it. Jesus did. And so I know it's right. 
Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 22, there's some scribes, lawyers, they come up to the Lord They ask him what's the greatest of all the commandments, and Jesus says this, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, excuse me, your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. This is the greatest and first commandment, Jesus says. And then he says, then the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. A few verses after that will say, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is what it's all about. Love the Lord, love God, love the Lord, and love others. And then the rest of the Bible explains how you do that. Love God and love others. And the rest of the scriptures will explain how you do that when you've got a bad attitude. How you do that when they've sinned against you. How to do that when you've sinned against them. The rest of the Bible will go and explain it. But love the Lord and love others. And that is the place that is far better than great treasures or fancy meals, as the verse describes here, or anything else that the world could offer. That's the condition that Solomon is referring to when he says, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Amen? Love the Lord and love others. Solomon continues, verse 18. He says, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. If you were with us last week, you recall that back in verse 1 says something similar. Similarly, it says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And as we looked last week, that we know that the way we respond to another who is already on edge with us goes a long way in determining what's going to happen next. If we're going to defuse the situation or we're going to stir up the situation, but the way that we respond to another that's already frustrated with us in some way or another, if we respond in kind when they're already angry with us, the result typically isn't going to be very good. We've all experienced that? Yeah, we know that to be the case. And here, Solomon points out the way in which a person that is prone to flying off the handle is more likely going to stir up additional strife than the person that is slow to anger. And so he says again, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. And he goes on to say, or in fact, his point here is that a person that is slow to anger, that person's not controlled by their emotions, but rather they're controlled by careful deliberation. And because they are controlled by careful deliberation, they think about what they're about to do. Because they do that, that actually quiets contention. Their calm, measured response settles things down. And I know we've all come to experience that. We know that to be the case. The wise person establishes these types of responses as their goal. They make it a matter of prayer. They make it a matter of reflection when their lives are not exhibiting those types of responses. And they realize, no, that's not just who I am. They know it's who I am. Lord, you need to change who I am. This is not acceptable. This is not appropriate. And they bring it to the Lord as such. They bring it to the Lord as sin. And they ask him for his help to overcome that sin. And that's the type of person that we should be desiring to be. And Solomon says that's a wise individual. Verse 19 says, The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. I find it interesting here that Solomon contrasts the sluggard with the upright person. A sluggard is a chronically lazy individual. And he contrasts that with the upright person. 
And the reason I find it interesting is because I think our tendency is to think of the chronically lazy person as a person with some bad character traits, but not necessarily to bring it into the realm of being a sinner, that we don't think of chronic laziness as sinful. But notice here, Solomon contrasts sluggardliness, if that's a word, with uprightness. And so Solomon is bringing those two into the same category. That means if chronic laziness is prevalent in your life, it's not just a bad character trait. It's something you need to bring to the Lord to pray about him rooting out of your life. Because if it's not yet sin, it's moving in the direction of sin. And so as such, you need to petition the Lord to so burden your heart. There are times we're told something in our life is sin, and we don't quite yet believe the person telling us, whether it's the word of God or another person speaking into our lives. And so then we need to make those things matters of prayer. Lord, the, the word tells me that this is sin. I don't really believe that in my heart, that it is sin. That's why I continue in it. Lord, would you so burden my heart, would you so change me that I want nothing to do with this thing anymore? That's what it means to, to bring these things and to petition the Lord to root them out of our lives. He goes down into the deepest places to reveal to us, to convince us, you don't want this in your life, it's not good for you. And as you do that, God gives you such a disgust eventually for it. Initially, you have to kind of fake it, so to speak. Like, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. But eventually, you don't want to do it. You see what I'm saying? Because God begins to root that out of you. And so if chronic laziness is indeed a problem in your life, make it a matter of prayer. Give it to the Lord. Now, some might ask the question, well, how do I know if I'm a sluggard? How do I know if I'm chronically lazy? Ask your mom or dad. All right, they'll tell you. All right, no, I'm just teasing. You can figure it out yourself. Simple questions like this. Do you always tend to find an excuse for why you can't do something? Does your path always seem, as it says here, to be a hedge of thorns? I think of Jeff Foxworthy. You know, then you might be a sluggard. You know, remember that guy? You might be a redneck or whatever. If you always tend to find an excuse, there always seems to be a roadblock that you just can't get past. If those types of tendencies are found in your life or present in your life frequently, then you just might be a sluggard. It says here, the way of the sluggard is like a hedge of thorns. And in a previous study back in, I forget, a little while ago when we were looking at sluggards, we, back then we looked forward to Proverbs chapter 22. And there in 22.13, you may recall this verse, it says, the sluggard says there is a lion outside, I shall be killed in the streets. There's always an excuse. Now, a lion is a good excuse. I will say that. However... Somehow the wise person, the prudent person, the persevering person, somehow they figure it out and they get the tasks that they need to get done. And so it's more than the fact that I don't want to be eaten by a lion. There, there's just, there's one more reason why I can't. There always seems to be a reason why the sluggard can't do what needs to be done. Whereas the non-sluggard somehow seems to find the path of no resistance. Look what he says here, Solomon, in, back in 15. 15. He says, the way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. If you want to find a way, more often than not, you will find a way. And so you persevere. And the upright individual recognizes his responsibility, her responsibility, presses on, finds their way, takes one step after the other, and before you know it, they've completed their task. And then when you add to that perseverance, 
a genuine seeking of the Lord for wisdom and strength, the result generally is success in your endeavors. Sluggardliness, chronically la- being chronically lazy, these things matter in our Christian walks. And so they should become matters of prayer to us that the Lord would root out any uh, evidence of them in our lives. Amen? And again, that's all balanced with take a break every now and again. Just do nothing. Just sit in a chair and relax, read a book or something, or don't even do that. Stare at the sky, all right, if that's what you want to do. Uh, you know, so, no, not too much, amen. All right, now I'm teasing you. But just balance it out. That's all I'm suggesting here, okay? Verse 20, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. I find this to be a bit humorous because it seems that Solomon is saying this, that if the son is doing great, that's my boy. If the son's not doing so well, that's her boy. You know, it, it seems that that's kind of what he's saying here. A wise son makes, his glad, makes a glad father, but the foolish man despises his mother. We know the reality is, that, of, is this, that a wise son makes both mom and dad, dad glad, even as a wise daughter makes mom and dad glad. As a son or a daughter grows, and as they begin increasingly to make wise decision, decisions, mom and dad's heart is satisfied that all of those years of hard work and all of those years of diligence is paying off because their son, their daughter is on a good path and should they remain on that path, they know that God has good things in store for them and that encourages a parent. It makes the heart of the parent glad. Now the foolish man here, by ignoring the counsel and the upbringing of mom and dad, breaks mom and dad's heart, breaks mom's and dad's heart. It's almost as if they despise their parents, to use the word that Solomon used there, because they must despise their parents if they're willing to bring all this grief upon their parents. Who else would do that uh, other than a person that despises mom or dad? This is where Solomon is sort of going with this. And I said this last week here, that in the proper course of things, the way things are supposed to operate, no one is going to love their son or their daughter more or desire better for their son or their daughter more than mom or dad. That's the normal order of how things should go. Your heart is just wedded to that child. And the moment that baby comes out of the womb, your heart is just there. And the moment that baby becomes your own, your heart is just there and you love the child. You don't even know anything about the child yet. It's just there in front of you. And your heart is wedded to them. And so mom or dad wants the very best for that particular child as they grow up. That, combined with the benefit of their experience gained for many more years of living, So they have all this experience, all this wisdom, all this knowledge for many years of living, and they love you more than anyone else can possibly love you. You put all those together, that's a person you should be listening to. That's a person whose wisdom and advice you should be receiving or at least regarded highly enough to give it a hear. The fool, however, considers himself wiser than mom and dad, and thus they ignore the loving advice and helpful counsel of mom and dad. That is not a recipe for success. And so whether we're young or we're, even if we're older and our parents are older, you know, we're adults, that sort of thing, you can still look to mom or dad for wisdom. doesn't necessarily mean you have to take every word of advice that they have, but you know that they have many more years' experience, they love you, and they want to speak good into your life, and so you give them a listen. Verse 21, it says, Folly is a joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight ahead. The fool takes pleasure in his sin. And rather than sinning with regret, 
approaches his sin with great light, delight. It says here, folly is a joy to him who lacks sense. Rather than repenting of their sin, the fool boasts about his sin. The fool loves folly. As it says here, it is a joy to him. And that is why the fool is a fool. Because they love their sin, they love their folly. Those things bring joy to him and or them, and thus they run after those things. Now the wise man on the other hand, we see here, finds his joy in progressing along what we'll call the straight and narrow. So you look at the verse there, but a man of understanding walks straight ahead. The wise man's desire is to know God and to walk in God's ways. And when the wise man stumbles in their ways, when the wise man falls short of God's glory, when the wise man sins, they don't rejoice in that sin, but rather they're grieved by that sin which drives them to repent of that sin and then turn from that sin and then get back on the path again, trying to walk the straight and narrow. Very different from the fool, isn't it? One's rejoicing in it, the other one is grieving over it. Our response to sin, our approach to sin, both before we engage in it and afterwards, reveals the condition of our heart. The way we respond to sin that we want to move into or we're thinking about moving into, desiring, or after we have found ourselves having fallen and sinned, the way we respond to that reveals the condition of our hearts. And so if you find yourself reveling in your sin or even excusing your sin, that's pretty serious because it reveals you haven't come to grips with the reality of your sin. Or perhaps I did a long time ago, but I've forgotten the reality of my sin, that my sin sent Jesus Christ to a cross. And if you rejoice in it or you excuse it like it's no big deal, then that reveals you don't truly understand the depths of your sin and what it cost the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sin is grieving to God, and it should be grieving to the child of God. And so we allow the Lord to search our heart in those matters. Verse 22, it says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Not the first time that Solomon has exhorted us of the value of seeking uh, wisdom, receiving counsel, even receiving the counsel of an abundance of individuals. Back in chapter 10, he said, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Oftentimes, we'll hear people say things like this, well, I'll just make the decision and deal with the problems later. Exactly. Exactly right. You will deal with the problems later. If, on the other hand, we want to demonstrate wisdom and we want to be wise, then we'll seek the advice and the counsel of others before making those decisions. We'll f- seek out those that have previously demonstrated wisdom in their lives, in the decisions that they make, and we'll seek their counsel. And that will protect us. There are people who could give us good advice, but we have to listen to those particular people. There's an old Latin phrase. I never took Latin. I have no idea how to say it in Latin, so I'll just put it in English. But it it says this, many eyes see more than one. Many eyes see more than one. And when another person can come on or another group of people can come in and sort of evaluate as well, they're going to see things from a different perspective. And they can communicate wisdom for you. And they can reveal blind spots. You're like, I had no idea. Thank you so much for drawing that to my attention. And at the very least, even if you you feel afterwards that their counsel isn't the direction you want to go, at the very least, it's in the equation. 
and you can now evaluate on a much more knowledgeable base and make a better decision. And so in many counselors, there is wisdom. It's when we go it alone that mistakes so often happen. So we read, again, chapter eleven fourteen. in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. A little bit later in the book of Proverbs, it'll say this, in an abundance of counselors, there is victory. And so you and I would be wise to pay Solomon heed. Again, the tendency is for us to seek either no counsel, I'm just going to do what I want to do, I'll deal with it later, or to only seek out the counsel of those we know are going to agree with us. And that's a mistake. We need to go and receive the counsel of others, even if it's something we may not want to hear. And in that is victory, in that is safety. Correct? Verse 23, it says, To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season. Oh, how good it is. I added the O. Um, Sorry. How good it is. I don't know if you take pleasure in things like I do. But if I'm somewhere and, and somebody says, excuse me, sir, they, you know, they pull up their little car or I'm at Wawa or something like that, and, and they come up and say, sir, you live around here? And I say, yeah. And they'll say, hey, could you help me find? I get really excited about the opportunity. I don't know, do you? I feel like, and then I, I say like, yeah, you know, you got to go up to the turn and th- three lo- roads and you'll find it. And then they go away and I walk away convinced I'm the best person since, you know, that has ever lived. I'm such a good person. You know, boy, I help those people there. It's, I find it to be very satisfying to be able to help and guide someone that clearly doesn't know something. And so giving directions to an out-of-towner, for instance, there is a genuine, I think a lot of us have this, a genuine satisfaction in being able to give an honest, helpful answer to another person. And certainly that other person is happy because they figured out how to get to that place that they needed to get to. But there's a satisfaction and, if you will, a joy or a happiness even in our own hearts. And it says here, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man. It goes on and it says that equally satisfying is when God uses you to not only speak the right word, to help them find where they need to get to, but to do so at the right moment. Solomon uses the phrase in season. He says, and a word in season, how good it is. So to be able to speak that right word at the right time in a person's life and impact their life in such a way, even with minor things, but to impact their life in such a way that you become, if you will, the mouthpiece for God, that God just worked through you to do a work in that person's life. Very satisfying, isn't it? No wonder I added the word, oh, how good it is. It's not just, yeah, that was cool. God used me. No, that's awesome. What an opportunity to be able to do so, to be able to give an apt answer and to do so in the right season. What a blessing that can be. Another verse, verse 24, last one today. uh, It says this, the path of life leads upward for the prudent that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. And once again, we are reminded of the two roads and the two destinies of the human race. The one leads upward, the other to the grave or to Sheol, as it says here, which is often translated hell. These words that we've been looking at in Proverbs, these words that we study in our Bibles when we gather together or when you're in your quiet time or you you come together with folks in a small group study or what have you, these are not just some nice principles that we can apply to live some nice life. That's not what this is. Sometimes I think we can get into that trap, particularly with the book of Proverbs, where you have all sort of these little statements about kind of living your life or whatever. We can walk away thinking these are nice principles so that we can live a nice life. These words scattered throughout this book and the message of this book are words with eternal ramifications. 
there is a way, listen to these two Proverbs, there is a way that seems right unto man. The end thereof is, you know, is death. Conversely, as we saw a few weeks ago, in the path of righteousness is life. And it's, in its pathway, there is no death. These words have eternal ramifications. They will either lead you to life or they will lead you to death. And the prudent man or woman recognizes these things. The prudent man or woman recognizes their own depravity and that that depravity separates them and alienates them from a loving and a holy God. Eternal ramifications. And then, after having coming to know the washing and the cleansing that comes through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, the heart is burdened then to go help other people to know that reality as well. And so this morning, as we celebrate the reality of the cleansing, we're going to do so by celebrating communion together. And so we're going to bring the worship team back up. You guys can come on up. And they're going to lead us in a few more songs of worship. Don't go anywhere. I stir stirring. If you're not on the worship team, sit down. All right? As they lead us in a few more songs, the purpose of this time of worship is to prepare our hearts for the receiving of the elements. And I would encourage you to do just that. Not just to sing, eh, how many we got? Two, three, and then we can get out of here. But to use this time to prepare your hearts, to ask the Lord these questions, okay? So you don't even have to sing. These guys have been practicing. They'll lead us. Ask the Lord to reveal areas of your life in which you have been running after self, where you have been running after your own ways. Ask the Lord to draw your attention to ways in which you've been running in your own wisdom and not his. Ask him to unveil tendencies in your heart that only serve to alienate you from God and from others. And as the Lord begins to minister to your heart and to put areas on your heart, when he does that, confess those areas. You know, Lord, you're right. I know you're right. I knew that all along. I've been wrestling with this for months now and just sort of pushing you aside. And confess it as such. Agree with him. Acknowledge it. And then ask him to cleanse you. I give it to you again now, Lord. Ask him to cleanse you afresh regarding those things. Commit your way that when you leave this place, you're going to walk in the ways that he would have you to do so. And the Lord will minister to your heart in preparation for communion. Now, I will say this, first things first, for some of us here. Some of us here need to ask the question, am I even right with the Lord? Have I ever dealt with my sin at all? You're here, and I'm glad you're here, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're a believer in Jesus Christ. It doesn't necessarily mean that you've come to the cross of Christ recognizing that your sin put Jesus up on a cross, that he went to a cross to cover the penalty for your sin, that he died so that you would not have to die, that he was judged so that you would not have to be judged. Some of you have never been there before, and you've never confessed to yourself to be a sinner in need of a Savior. Jesus Christ is that Savior. And when we celebrate communion, those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ, those of us that have come to the cross of Christ, we are boldly proclaiming my sin is forgiven because a perfect one took my sin. If you've never done that, communion is not for you. But you can do that right now before we get to that. And so in the next set of songs, begin to just pray. You don't have to sing, just pray. Ask the Lord to reveal, am I a sinner? Am I outside of the Savior's love? Have I ever accepted the work of Jesus Christ? And if he reveals you never really did do that, then you do that right while you're sitting there. And Jesus Christ will enter into your life. He'll forgive you of your sins. He'll call you his child. He'll adopt you as his own. And then this is totally for you.
Amen, good friends? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for that reality, for the, for the simple truth of that scripture that everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Father, I pray for those with us right now that have yet to confess their sins to a holy God, have yet to acknowledge that their sin separates them from a holy God, and have never looked to Jesus Christ as not just a sacrifice for sin, but the sacrifice for their sin. And I pray that you would stir in their heart in such a way that no peace would come until they do that. And Lord, you'd set them free from the penalty of their sin by the washing of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those of us in this room that are followers of Christ. Lord, your desire for us is to go deeper and deeper still. And as that deep cries out, to deep. Lord, we pray that you would draw our hearts into those places. Lord, whatever needs to be revealed, that you would reveal it. Any hardness of heart that we've been harboring, we'd give it over to you. Any secret sins that we may have, we would become disgusted now by those sins, by the working of your Holy Spirit, and we would leave them here. Lord, do a powerful work within our hearts as we receive from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.